You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Good afternoon, and welcome to Conversations and Meditations. My name is Virgil Verix, and I'm your host. Today is March 31st, 2018, and I uh, just want to get started today and get to a few different things uh, before we get started with the main points for today. So the first thing I'd like to talk about, and uh, I guess kind of giving you an outline of what today's show is going to be, uh, particularly about, it's about disagreement. Uh, it's about arguing with people, and it's about finding the best ways to have a disagreement with uh, respect for one another, uh, for one another's positions, and also respect for each other's uh, humanity at the end of the day because what we're seeing a lot today in conversations, whether it's conversations through the um, internet like this one, uh, whether it's conversations through mainstream media like um, print publications and um, you know other TV sh- channels and news channels, um, there doesn't seem to be a really good central way of refuting arguments and going about them without somehow sliming your opponent while you're doing it. So I, w- I would like to get to a few different things. Um, and the first is there is this um, English-born programmer um, with a PhD from Harvard. His name is Paul Graham. Uh, he's also an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. And uh, he wrote this um, – paper in I think it was 2008 and it's called How to Disagree and uh, he basically proposed a hierarchy of disagreement um, and it's still relevant today as it was when it came out 10 years ago when it was first published. So I'd like to go a little bit through this and kind of give you a understanding. So it's kind of – it reminds me a lot of Maslow's hierarchy of needs which is from psychology and it's basically a pyramid uh, and there's um, eight different steps. And starting from the bottom, which is the worst way to argue, all the way to the top, which is the most accurate and most precise way to argue. So at the bottom is name-calling. Next up on there is ad hominem. Um, Next worst way to argue uh, is responding to tone. The next best is contradiction. Uh, After that is a counter-argument, then a refutation, then refuting the central points. So uh, just a basic quick examples of each one of these and kind of give you a, an under, a basic understanding is for name calling. I think it's pretty self-evident when you're in a uh, conversation with somebody and you're talking about central um, points and central themes that are part of your identity, part of your value system. And you guys are going back and forth 
and the person starts to call you names. You know, someone calls you an asshat or something like that. You know, obviously at that point, the person is not arguing in good faith. So that's the lowest form, according to Graham, of arguing, which is name calling. Um, the next up there, like I mentioned, is ad hominem. So this attacks the characteristics or the authority of the writer without really addressing the substance of the argument. So for instance, if I make a blog post or come here and talk about certain topics within psychology and a person doesn't necessarily ar you know, argue against my points that I make, rather they say, well, you're not a psychologist, so you can't really talk about these points. Or they say, well, you know, you're not you – know, um, you don't have the right temperament to be talking about these types of uh, things. Those are you know, ad hominem attacks and that's you know, the, the second lowest form of argumentation and disagreement. Um, the next is responding to tone, like I said, you know, and this you know criticizes the tone of the writing without addressing the substance of the argument. So, in many cases, when a person writes a blog or uh, comes in and speaks on a podcast, it, you might get some people that will argue with the way the person said something versus the particular arguments. So, there's been speakers who've been accused of. Uh, being cold and uh, <laughs> empty-hearted. So there's people out there like Sam Harris who's come out and mentioned that when you make arguments and you talk, you should talk about things as dispassionately as possible in order to get to the truth and not to muddy it with, you know, emotional arguments and uh, emotional, you know, all these different fallacies that really take away from the argument itself. So, but again, you know, I also uh, believe that and uh, subscribe to that type of mentality when it, comes to, when it comes to argumentation and coming to disagreements because if you are talking about something and you are talking about it using emotional language, using uh, body language that is obviously uncomfortable and you know it's, it can be intimidating to the other person you're talking to, it can really put a shield between you and the other person and stop you from attaining the, the chance to hear what they have to say because most people when they really get into a disagreement and you know this is something Carl Jung uh, – not Carl Jung, excuse me. Um, this is something uh, Sigmund Freud talked about in Civilization and its dis dissonance I think um, and there he had a phrase called the narcissism of small differences and re really when you talk to most people today, most you know, uh, liberal-minded um, secular people, when they talk about – politics or religion or some other hot-button topic, usually, at least in my experience, I've had in the past and even sometimes today, it's always gotten to a certain point in the conversation that, oh, I said something or the person said something that automatically triggers them into a defensive mode. And it can be as little as saying, yeah, I know where you're coming from, but, you know, using the word but, that that automatically you know, you lose all, you lose all the good faith you've you've built through the conversation by that little word, and that can that can really set a bomb off in somebody's brain, and they could totally think that you're you're not trying to understand them, rather you're trying to you know punish them for their for their opinions. So the next thing is um, contradiction. You know, this is when you're stating the opposite case, but with little or no supporting evidence. So you might you might come into a uh, an argument with somebody. And you say you make you make the opposite point, but you don't back it up. You don't give anything there. Now, this is right in the middle of the hierarchy in terms of uh, the uh, the pyramid. I think it's interesting. It's in the middle because you know it's it's exactly what a what the basic disagreement is. It's like okay, I think the opposite, 
but I'm not really going to give you that much supporting evidence. It's the most basic form of a honest, you know, uh, argument against another person's position. Um, the next, like I mentioned, is counter argument, and this, you know, contradicts. Then it backs it up with reasoning and or supporting evidence. So this right here is uh, really important, and it's a really great tool um, to understand because you're stating your own position. And at the same time, using things to strengthen your position. So this gives you a much better hand when it comes to argumentation and a much better hand when it comes to getting your points across and having people understand where you're coming from. The next uh, – this is the second one like I mentioned right before the top is refutation. And uh, this finds the mistake and explains why it's mistaken using quotes. So you know – you might be in an argument with somebody. You might hear their position, hear their words out, and then you can take a few diff few of their quotes or a few of their sayings, and you know, and then keep them in your head. Then, when you go to make a counter argument, you know, you go in with a counter. You, you have the supporting evidence, but then you find a mistake in their argumentation, and then you you explain their mistake by using their own words. So right now, they either have to backtrack, retake their words, or they're going to have to further explain their themselves. And sometimes when that happens, they can find themselves in a position that they won't really be able to come at you with a accurate you know answer as fast as they would like. And the highest, most um, uh, ethical point of uh, disagreement and arguing is uh, refuting the central point. So this explicitly refutes the central point of the other person's argument. Rather than kind of going around the bush and taking you know uh, a more wide approach, this goes directly at the heart of the argument, and it doesn't you know leave any questions up. It's solid and it's right there. So that's kind of my interpretation, you know, of getting understanding what Graham was trying to say and where he's going from. And like I said, you know, uh, the name calling, you know, at zero, the name calling, <laughs> people do these things. It, it's, it can be very crude. It can hurt your feelings. And what it's meant to do essentially is I can't come up with a better argument to yours. So I'm just going to call you bad names in order to make you feel bad. So the name calling usually it's not just like, oh, you're stupid or stuff like that. It's it's more pernicious in some cases. It, it's the intention of the name calling is to make you feel guilty for your position, to make you feel like, OK, well, you disagree with me, so you must be wrong. You must be immoral. And I think the biggest thing we can take from today's conversation is understanding that, you know, you might have a disagreement with somebody, but it doesn't mean that that person is immoral. You know, it doesn't mean that that person isn't a good person and loves their family and loves what they do because – Nine times or 9.9 .9 times out of 10, most people do. And to assume, you know, the person's character based on their arguments is, is, a, is a fallacy and, and at, at best. And at worst, it's, uh, it's, it's really moralistic and judgmental. And, uh, and that's what I have to say on, on that and kind of giving you more of a uh, understanding of where I see that, you know, from, from, the, from the lowest position, you know. And like I said about the ad hominem, you know, which basically translates in Latin to – which means uh, to the person, you know, uh, you're, you're devaluating the opinion uh, by devaluating the person who's express, uh, expressing it and not really taking anything into account, not looking into maybe this person has some interesting information or interesting arguments that I could see. Rather, you go, well, we're all playing armchair psychologists or we're all playing pop science. You know, we really know what we're talking about 
And this goes into a central theme of the show and a central theme of some of the values I talked about last week. Um, one of the main values that I have is, you know, empirical evidence, finding the truth, using reason, logic, and evidence to get to the truth. Now, when when someone makes an ad hominem attack, basically attacking the person's um, authority, whether they don't have you don't have the authority to make this type of argument. Well, I, I I honestly think that that just automatically stops all conversations every time because not everybody, most people aren't experts on any of the big issues and big topics that we talk about. Most people just have ideas, and these ideas ruminate and they bounce back and forth between other individuals. And at the end of the day, you know that's the person's uh, you know values and ideas. But when you you mention that a person doesn't have the authority to make this argument, what you're really saying is that you don't have the specific PhD or other abbreviations after your name that lets me know that this is what your this is your life's work. So you know, to, to people who make these type of arguments towards you, I mean, the thing that I would recommend is looking back and saying, well, does that mean that I can't talk about anything that I'm not an expert in? And automatically. At that point, the other person is going to say, well, uh, no, because if they say yes to that, they're putting themselves in a box as well along with you and they're maligning themselves into the position where that they're not worthy of an opinion and you're not worthy of an opinion because you are not an expert and that essentially is killing the argument before it's even started, killing the conversation before it's even started. You know, um, in the more evolved Tone, you know, even the more evolved form of disagreement, responding to the tone. Um, when the debate moves away from personal attacks, you know, and uh, to addressing the content of the argument, you know, you might you might see this happening. Um, you know, but the lowest form of responding to the actual argument is uh, is disagreeing with the tone. You know, this person might sound cavalier, or this person is flippant, or this person is. Um, Full of himself, you, you might see these types of words used in other, you know, refutations of people's arguments, and at that point, you can quite see that, you know, it's a judging tone, and the judging tone is quite subjective. It's it's not really it's uh, it's not really what is happening. It's not really what's rea- what's going on in reality. What's going on in reality is somebody telling you their opinions, and the way you're interpreting it, if you're making this this mistake in, in disagreement by responding to the tone is saying that, oh, well, you sound full of yourself. Therefore, you know, your argument probably is just as full of full of it as you are. So that's that's a categorical mistake. And this is something we have to be cognizant of and understand that, you know, you might not like the way somebody gives you their ideas or their opinions. You might not like the way they come across. Um, granted, they might come across a little harsh and a little uh, – a little dispassionate, like I mentioned earlier. And what you need to understand is that not everybody is married to their ideas uh, to the point where, you know, if you criticize your, their idea, you are criticizing the fabric of their of their foundational, you know, assumptions of themselves. I mean, you're atta- so you're you're not only attacking them, you're attacking. Uh, I mean, not only attacking the idea, you're attacking them. So you have to make sure that when you do criticize tone, if you ever do, it's right after you criticize the points. Um, so, you know, then we, we, we go into the the, uh, the contradiction and Graham gives a great example. Um, this is, and again, this is a higher form of, of, of uh, disagreement and you're addressing the actual meat of the argument. Um, you know, you're offering the opposite case 
but very little evidence. You know, uh, you just say what you think. You give a contrast of the position. You know, and Graham said, uh, I can't, you know, he gives this example. I can't believe the author dismisses intelligent design in such a cavalier fashion. Intelligent design is a legitimate scientific theory. So that's a contradiction. Uh, it's, it's another, it's a refutation, uh, basically, almost, uh, of the of the person's statement. You're giving the opposite contradiction, and that's it. Um, the next stage, um, just to give a little, little more background what Graham thinks about this, is uh, the counter-argument. Um, and this is when we start having the most – are starting to have the more – a more productive conversation, a more, more productive dis- disputes. Um, it's basically you know, – counter-argument is basically a contradiction with evidence and reasoning. And uh, when it's aimed squarely at the original argument, it can be convincing. Uh, that's what Graham said. And I, I, I totally agree and I totally think that if you are going to be going um, – to a situation where you are going to be talking to close friends, close family. And that's – and to be honest, that's the hardest conversations, the hardest people to have the conversations with because you don't want your close friends and your close family to think something you know, that you're not and they might just make the assumptions because they tie the assumptions with the beliefs or the ideas. So you know, making, making sure that you, know, you are trying to be as honest as possible and as open as possible – while giving a counter argument, while being respectful to the other person, is essential. But, um, but you know, and the thing about passionate arguments is uh, both people arguing at at the end of the day actually are arguing about different things. That you know, and they don't they won't be able to see it because when when people get passionate about a topic and a, and a discussion and a, and a situation, you'll have a position and a point where uh, <laughs> there there'll be cases where. You at a certain point will be like, what are we arguing about again? And this has happened to me recently where we were both getting a little heated in the conversation and we were talking very passionately and we both realized we weren't arguing with each other. We were talking at each other, which is a, which is a big mistake. And we weren't trying to find the truth. We were trying to win. So these things don't allow you to have uh, – don't allow you to talk about the same stuff because when when people are trying to win versus find the truth the people are people are the two different people are going to be talking about two separate different things in different ways one person wants to use evidence and reason and, and logic to make themselves you know it's a, it's a dominance hierarchy type of thing you know i am more right than you so i am better i am stronger this is uh you know some chimpanzee stuff <laughs> that's still roaming around in our heads that we we still we still end up doing uh, to one another, and I, I just don't think it's fair to to yourself and to the other person you're talking to. Um, and the last two things that that Graham talks about, the last two levels, and he gives a little bit more of an understanding here is uh, so refutation, the fifth one. Um, so with refutation, this is a more convincing form of, of disagreement, argues uh, Graham, but it requires work. A lot of work actually. So people don't generally go down this path. Um, so you know, he said the, the higher you go in the pyramid you know, of disagreements, the fewer instances you find. And a good, way to, you know, a good way to refute someone is to quote them back to themselves and to pick a hole in the quote to expose a flaw. It's important to find an actual quote to disagree with you know, the smoking gun and, and, and address it uh, as you will. And this will allow you to, number one, let the other person know that you're listening. 
<laughs> that's that's very important because we can be in conversations and the person can be saying something and we're not even listening. We're just thinking of how we're going to respond to that other person and how we're going to show that we're more right than them. So uh, refuting the points, refuting the points accurately, and uh, you know, going about it with using quotes from the from the person and their argument to to uh, show their flaws is uh, a very good method and probably a uh, not only a very good method in terms of being honest and, and going about it with a with an open mind and uh, coming at the conversation with good faith but it's also great because you know you're letting the person know that their words are not hollow their words are not just you know decibels that are going on around around them these are actual things you're taking in thinking about and then making arguments right back which shows mutual respect. It shows respect for the other person and their opinions. So you're not automatically letting the person know that, OK, well, you disagree with me. So I just I totally don't think you are right about anything or right about the situation. And you know what? Maybe you're not right about anything at all. So I'm just not going to listen to you. And a lot of people, once they hear someone talking, they might disagree with them. They're like, OK, I'm just checking out. This person's gone too far. I, I can't agree with him here. I'm done. And this gets to a position where – we know we're not talking. We're fighting. And um, last one uh, that Graham talks about is uh, refuting the central points. And he, he calls this the most powerful form of disagreement. Um, and it and really depends what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, largely entails refuting the, the central point of someone's main argument. And this is, you know, different from, you know, refuting other minor points of the argument. Um, you know, kind of a form of deliberate dishonesty in a debate in a way. Um, an example of that would be correcting someone's grammar when, you know, I'm pointing out factual errors in names or numbers. Unless, you know, unless those are like really important, crucial details, attacking them on these points only serves to discredit the opponent, not their main idea. So this is kind of going back to the ad hominem where you're kind of going against their you know their their character their their qualities as a authority in the field um but uh you know the best way to refute someone's argument according to Graham uh, is to figure out their central point or one of them if there are in our many to be uh, dealt with and uh Graham describes a truly effective refutation as you know the author's main point seems to be x as he says you know here's a quotation but this is wrong for the reasons and that's kind of the the, the three step pro- approach. You know, the you would say, okay, this your point seems to be this, and then you would quote the person, but then you'd say, well, I think your point is wrong for the following reasons, and then go into the reasons, and then actually make your arguments there, give evidence, give data, refute their data if they've already provided data, and you know, at the end of the day you're able to have a more honest and meaningful discussion that isn't going to be rife with name calling or you know judging a person by their uh by their you know uh lack of or lack of education or their lack of um understanding on a particular topic you know and having these tools and evaluating how we argue with one another can uh, go a long way towards retaining you know some civility in our discourse you know by avoiding the unproductive lower forms of the disagreement, we can really 
show that, you know, we're not, I mean, everybody's in, this is the age of trolling, you know, and, and when you sit and talk to people and sit and talk to uh, one another, um, you can't troll. You can't do it because other people are, understand what you're doing. People understand where you're coming from. And, you know, it's usually those people that want to make a conversation, you know, completely collapse and completely uh, in chaos. So it makes, you know, the whole evening kind of unfortunate. But that's where we have to stand up and say, okay, are you coming at this conversation honestly? Do you want to have an actual discussion or are you trying to win here? Where are you coming from? And, you know, you might – an example that we might all face is, you know, we see something on Facebook and I don't I don't encourage any of you to argue on social media on any important topic because – not because it might harm your reputation or anything like that. Um, but because that's not – I don't think that's an effective way of getting your, your ideas and your opinions out there, especially to people who you disagree with because you can't get an idea of their body language. You can't get an idea of are they comfortable sitting next to you and talking or do they really despise you? So you know, making arguments on social media is not a good idea and this is where we're seeing most of the civility breaking down. In our discourse, mostly, and I, I mentioned the news programs, I mentioned TV, and I mentioned all these other things. But the main problem and the main issue that I see is is coming primarily from social media and the way we interact with one another in social media, and it just comes down to these um, you know moral judgments on one another rather than dealing with people's points and dealing with people's arguments. We just go straight towards you're evil because you think X, Y, and Z. You're stupid because you think, you know, A, B, and C. And at the end of the day, we can't prejudge people. We can't be we can't have a prejudice towards people when we come into conversations just because they might believe something we don't or just think something that we don't. Like for instance, uh, an example with myself. I, I mentioned last time I was here that I uh, am an atheist. Now, when I talk to religious people and speak to religious people, I do not go into the conversation thinking that, well, this person is automatically foundationally wrong on one of the most important questions in life. Thus, I'm not really going to take what they say that seriously because that's a form of prejudice. That's a form of uh, bigotry in a way, saying that, well, since this person doesn't use the same tools that I use to come to truth or to their version of truth, and we'll, we'll get to that later, uh, then I must immediately denounce them because their thought process is you know, counterfactual to mine. And like I said, that doesn't allow you to conversate. It doesn't allow you and the other person to grow through conversations, to grow through development. What it allows is it allows you to, to be bitter. It allows you to never hear the opposite side. And a lot of people don't want to hear the opposite side for a few different reasons. Number one, you know, they, they might end up coming to a position and coming to a point that really shakes their foundational beliefs. And once your foundational beliefs are shaken and shaken to the core it is terrifying because you don't know whether or not you're going to stay and stick with your guns and stick with your with your uh, mentality or stick with your ideas or whether or not you're going to have to, you know, look into the toolbox and find some new tools and get a new world view. And, you know, this is this is scary for all of us because when you get into a good argument with somebody and they make some points and I'm going to sit here and tell you that, you know, I've never been into an argument or a discussion with somebody and left the argument not learning something. I've always learned something through arguments, whether it's – and primarily I've learned something about other people. But you know, ultimately, like I said earlier, is I want to understand and learn things about myself. Am I – how am I measuring to this you know, hierarchy of disagreement? 
Am I in the lower, you know, b- uh, bottom half of do I use those tactics or am I on the top half? You know, am I making an effort every single day when I do have disagreements with people? Am I making an effort to use the top half of the pyramid rather than, you know, the responding to tone and ad hominems and name callings and contradictions? You know, cuz in even in even contradictions, you know, which is which is right in the middle like I said, you're just stating the opposite case. You're not giving another – you're not arguing anything. You're just stating, OK, this is the opposite case. And you know, sometimes a contradiction to another person's statement is all you need because that's all you can give in the desired moment. And I'm not going here – I'm not here trying to say that you need to in every moment and every chance get into a meaningful argumentative discussion with somebody who, who's on the opposite end. Not at all. Not at all. And this is what I said, you know, the narcissism of small differences – the thing that Freud pointed out and uh, the, the, the reason why I, I love that phrase and the reason why I think that it's so important is because we all have differences to the way we think, to the way we act, to the way we – what we hold – what we value, what we hold to be uh, you know, an essential part of our value system, of our, of our, of our worldview. So we, we have different things. You know, but at the same time, most of these things – are small differences. You you ask most ninety nine point nine nine percent of people out there, they'll say that you know the major things, the moral things that we talk about, killing, uh, stealing, and all other violent acts towards another person. Any any act that uses force against another person um, unjustly, then obviously most and I think almost every person would agree that using using uh, using the, the force in any way unjustly is immoral and is wrong. So once we can find, you know, these these foundational agreements within my worldview and another person's worldview within my values and another person's values, we'll be able to slowly get closer to an agreement on certain things. And you know, once we can agree that our definitions of value is the same, and once we can agree that our definitions of good faith in a convert, once we can agree on these foundational points that I was mentioning earlier, then we can really have a conversation that isn't, you know, being, you know, chained by our ego or being chained by our ability to, you know, win. And, you know, an issue that I've noticed about winning and wanting to win in conversations. Um, growing up, I was in debate and uh, if, you, if you've been through debate or, or ever been into a debate competition, you know that – the point of what you're doing is to win, is to win the arguments, is to get the judge uh, judges to vote in your favor and say that you had the best argument. So coming from that background, and I had very, very limited amount of that. I, you know, that was mostly in high school and uh, not very much time. But from my time there and the things that I understood going to that program and understanding policy debate and all these other things is that that, that method of debating isn't and isn't a a good way of disagreeing in real life. And I know people that either have been around debate, have worked in debate, or uh, have had friends in debate. And when they talk and they get into these discussions, you see it. You see that you know the person is trying to get a one up on the other person. The person is trying to win. You know, uh, the person in one case is uh, one guy is bringing up a. A piece of data, and the other person who's trying to win 
is bringing up a piece of data that's maybe a month or two, you know, newer, but they're they're pointing to the fact that the data is more new, it's more fresh, so it has to be more accurate, uh, which is which is a fallacy, um, you know. And I honestly think that once we can kind of get over this whole, well, I want to win and we have to win this argument. Otherwise, if we don't win, then you know, I I'm disappointed in myself, and. It's like it's like it's like you're on a team. It's like it's like a it's like sports. You know, uh, when you have your position and your position loses, it's almost like your sport team loses, and, and you get you get emotional, you get angry, you start thinking that the other person is out there to get you, and that they're they're just attacking you. They're not attacking your points. And all I got to say to that is, uh, I honestly think that isn't the way to go about it, and that isn't the way to. You shouldn't have these you shouldn't project on other people right you shouldn't you shouldn't go into a conversation thinking that okay well this person he's automatically gonna gonna come at me really hard and it's gonna hit me in certain points and he's in a name call don't you have to go into conversations as open as you can be with as little expectations as you can be the only expectation you should have is the expectation that you're going to be acting on your best behavior and you're going to be using the forms of agreement that are you know to the tippy top and that are the most uh, rational and the most ethical. So, you know, we're trying to negotiate what might seem to be the non-negotiables, non-negotiables. What makes them so non-negotiable? You know, um, one of the main reasons, like I mentioned earlier, is we hold, we all hold certain values, beliefs as sacred. You know, the other side holds beliefs and values just like, my side or the uh, another person's side that are you know important and sacred, and then when you have different people and different different ideas and different beliefs behind them, and they get to talking, we talked about the disagreement. Now we're going to talk about the gridlock. You know, the the when you get into the conversation and you get to an impasse, and then you get to a point where the conversation completely gets into gridlock. Now, uh, can you get out of gridlock? Is it possible? You know, uh, can you? I mean, is there is there is there a way to do it? Um, can you? Is it is it true that you can't really negotiate with people on things that are foundational and important? I definitely think you can. I think you can get out of the gridlock, and I think you can definitely negotiate with with people um, the things that are foundational to who, to makes us you know the stuff that makes us who we are. So, um, the most powerful tool I know uh, when it comes to negotiating. Um, the most important topics in negotiating the non-negotiables uh, is the power of uh, listening, you know, um, and, and listening. It's, it's more, it's more than listening. It's, it's appreciation. And uh, because you are able, you use this ability, this appreciation to deeply listen to the other person's other side and other person's perspective, not just so you can argue back, but so that they can feel that they're being hurt. So, that's that's essential. So what I mean by the most important thing is to de- when I say deeply listen, I mean sit there, open your heart up, open your ears and listen to what the other person has to say. Even if everything they're saying is completely not, you know, by your uh, admission, that's not what you think is right or that's not your point of view. You have to have an open mind and an open heart. Listen completely and deeply. To the other's perspective. And the reason, like I said, this is so important, not to argue back, but to, to have the other person feel like they're being heard. Now, this is a, one of the hardest things to do. As you see in our polarized climate today, 
you have people on one side and people on the other side. And he's like, you know, um, you got to start by understanding the other person's perspective, you know, and you're going to look at me. Uh, you're probably going to look at me like I'm crazy when when you say that, um, you know, but that's that's where that's where this, this comes down to. This is where the truth of it comes down to is taking the time to actually hear the other person and not be disrespectful and listening. Listening is the key. And like I said, you know, uh, understanding the other person's other side's perspective fully, clearly. You know, it, it sounds crazy, you know, and uh, maybe it is. But I think it's a good type of crazy because people try to understand one side and then, you know, a minute or two later, they're like, you know, I understand your perspective, but, you know, I think you're wrong. And that just – what. That's not possible within a few minutes of conversating to, to say that to somebody. You know, you have to at least have an, a, half, a, half, a half an hour to an hour. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand where you're coming from. But, you know, I totally think you're wrong within 20, within 15 minutes of talking to somebody. I don't think that's fair. I don't think, I don't think you can fully understand where they're coming from unless it's something super basal and super, you know, easy to understand. You know, but when we're talking about, like I said, important topics, foundational, sacred beliefs – Values that we, we view as sacred. I don't think you can just sit there for 10, 10, 15 minutes and just hear what they have to say and be like, yeah, I get it, but you're wrong. And then just make your point. I don't think that's going to work out. I think if anything, that's going to make the other person recoil and not want to listen to you. And you, they don't, you know, so that's the main thing. You want to listen to them so that they give you the chance, you know, they give you the chance to be heard. There's reciprocity. This is what it's, what's, what it's about. This is what we, we have to do in a civil society in order to become close with one another. Um, you know, and it's, it's not – like I said, it's not just like, yeah, I get it. You know, you have, to, you have to tell them like, OK, tell me more. Help me understand this. Talk to me. You have to, you have to really dig deep to understand a person and it requires just as much work as the person who's talking. It requires just as much work for the person who's listening. You know, in the moment, anybody with even the most important uh, value and belief starts to feel heard and valued, you know, their arms are going to uncross. They're going to they're going to listen to you, and they're going to they're going to say, "Wow, you 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 understand where I'm coming from. You really don't judge me for my opinions. You really don't think I'm an idiot because I believe X or believe Y and believe Z. You are just listening to me, and you're allowing you're 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 hearing what I'm trying to say." You know, and obviously the danger in that can be when a person says like, okay, well, if you know where I'm coming, so why don't you agree with me? You know, and uh, that 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 comes down to a position. And th- this is what I said earlier, like using the word but is so dangerous because it, it can really make you feel and make the other person feel that they're not being hurt. And it makes, it makes them feel like this is just a game. So um, – you move forward. That's the main thing. When 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 a person when you are, when you're able to listen to somebody and you really hear what they have to say and they say, well, you do understand where I'm coming from. That's great. You know, and they say, well, why don't you agree with me then? You're like, well, I, we're moving forward, and uh, I've heard what you had to say. You know, and the most important piece is you know is to say at that moment is just like, and just as you have your ideas and your points of view, so do I. I have mine. I have my own sacred values. Um, and would you be open to listening to what I have to say and to to my perspective? I understand where you're coming from. I understand where we're coming from, and but you're but you're not wrong. And that's and that's the thing. It when it when it uh, but 
it's not that you're not wrong, but see, it's make this is tough because you don't want to tell the you don't want to give a judgment on the person, especially if this is a conversation. It's not an argument. If it's just a a, a meaningful conversation about emotions and understanding one another and trying to see you know a a person's point of view you're not trying to tell them well your point of view is wrong what you're trying to say is like okay i understand where you are this is where you are this is where i'm at would you like to understand more of where i'm coming at and um that's how most of our conversations take place you know for the most part it's like i understand but and that but really can kill the conversation and really can stop you from being able to um, get there. So I would I would make the recommendation instead of saying but, you would say the word and. So uh, an example could be like I hear where you're coming from and I see the value in your perspective and I'm letting you know that I, I can – you know that this is where I'm coming from. Right there, you're not making – you're not casting judgment on the person. You're not casting judgment on their ideas necessarily. You're just saying, well, this is your perspective and I, 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 this is your values and I value your perspective. This is mine. And you know, this is when I – and I said listening and uh, being appreciated. You know, when, when a person knows that they are being listened to, right, you, you let them know that what they're saying is valuable to, the, to you, the listener. Someone's talking to me and I'm listening deeply, intently, trying to understand where they're coming from. What I'm really doing is allowing the person to express every aspect of their being without casting judgment, without being moralistic. And I'm a moralist. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm, I, don't, I don't believe in ethics and morals. I do. And I do believe that there should be times and places for conversations on morals and ethics. But, you know, you have to make sure the other side truly feels like they're being heard and understood. And it gives you it gives you a better likelihood that they're going to sit there and do the same thing for you, the reciprocity that we talked about. And um, you want to share your perspective, right? And uh, you want to you want to you want to show a little bit of your perspective, a little bit of who you are. And then, you know, periodically say while the conversation is going, do you do you get where I'm coming from? Do you hear what I'm saying? It's a simple question, and uh, why is that important? You know, because it, 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 it puts it puts the onus on the other person to empathize with your perspective, or at least try to take a stance of understanding of that perspective. It's kind of the same. It's kind of the same thing they were doing, but you're doing it more consciously. And the reason that's important, because uh, you know you're you're kind of in a way forcing them to empathize with your point of view, is so they can. Remove the, their barriers, remove their their prejudices, their biases, and they can just look at your argument as is, without any of these things at their you know at face value. Then they're able to be like, okay, I'm hearing what he's saying, I'm understanding where he's coming from. So this takes you to you know a more successful side of the argument, um, and you know now success is is accurately reflected by telling the other person what they said and saying, okay, is this what you said? Is this what you meant? So we can make sure that we're on the same page. You have to be clear. Um, and then also at the end of everything you said, it's like, okay, so what do you hear me saying? What do you th- where do you, where do you see me? Where, where, how are you interpreting this? Are you interpreting my words as I want you to interpret them? Or are you interpreting my words with some type of bias? So 
it's it's really hard. It's really difficult. So I think it's one step for us to truly understand each other is and, and our perspectives is by, you know, following the those hierarchy of disagreements. And like I mentioned earlier by Paul Graham's uh, uh, article that came out in 2008. But it's also, you know, and this some of the stuff I'm mentioning right now, um, this is some of the work by psychologist uh, Marshall Rosenberg. And he created uh, – in the 1960s, he created this approach called nonviolent communication, uh, also known as compassionate communication or collaborative communication. And, um, you know, it, it basically focuses – you know, the theory, NVC theory uh, supposes that all human behavior stems from an attempt to meet universal human needs and that these needs are never in conflict. And now I don't necessarily agree with everything Marshall Rosenberg has to say and I would recommend anybody out there to go on YouTube and type in nonviolent communication Marshall Rosenberg and watch his, watch his seminars and watch his workshops. These things will change your life and change the way you talk to people. So I mean – and his work has been used in business settings and parenting and education and meditation, psychotherapy, healthcare, eating issues, addressing eating issues and justice. Um, it was even a basis for a children's book. Um, but also, you know, Rosenberg r- related the nonviolent communication into peace programs and conflict zones, you know, in Burundi, Nigeria, Malaysia, Indonesia, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Colombia, Serbia, Croatia, Ireland, and including the Middle East, uh, most notably in the Palestinian territories and in Israel. So Dr. Rosenberg created this um, system, you know, and the nonviolent communication hold had the most conflicts between individuals or groups arise from miscommunication about their needs, their human needs due to coercive or manipulative language that aims to induce fear, guilt, or shame into the person like we talked about earlier. And these violent, quote, violent modes, as I don't think speech can be violence unless you're obviously inciting violence, but you know, to use uh, Rosenberg's language here, these violent modes of communication when used during a conflict divert attention on the participants away from clarifying their needs, their feelings, their perceptions, and their requests, thus perpetrating the conflict, increasing the conflict, and making it worse. So he obviously published numerous training materials to help all types of people out there, and he was concerned with transforming um, gangs and domination structures through methods called, you know, an ask, ask, ask. He suggested social change activists could focus on gaining access through powers in order to ask, ask, ask for change, for changes that will make life better for all, including the powerful. So some of the assumptions uh, that you take into uh, NVC training and, and some of the trainers have talked about. So one, all human beings share the same needs. Okay. Two, our world offers sufficient resources for meeting everyone's basic needs. Three, all actions are attempts to meet needs. Four, Feelings point to needs being met or unmet. All human uh, five. All human beings have the capacity for compassion. Six. Human beings enjoy giving. Seven. Human beings meet needs through interdependent relationships. Eight. Human beings change. Nine. Choice is internal. It's not an external process. It's an internal process. If you want change, you have to accept it yourself. Number ten. The most direct path. To peace is through self-connection, um, and you know some of the some of the trainers and some of the people involved with uh, nonviolent communication. You know you have to have 
the special form of intentions, you know, and with open-hearted living, you know, you have to be, you have to have some self-compassion. You have to express from the heart, right? You have to receive with compassion, right? You have to prioritize connection. And that's a, that's a very, very important concept. And you have to move beyond right and wrong to use need-based assessments versus, you know, whether we're making point, making sense or not making sense. So choice, uh, responsibilities, and peace. The next point t- talks about, you know, taking responsibility for our feelings, right? That's one. Two, taking responsibility for our actions. Three, living in peace with unmet needs. So living in your environment when your needs are not met. Four, increasing capacity for meeting needs. Five, increasing capacity for meeting the present, meeting the present moment. And uh, the last part, uh, the last part of the intentions is sharing part power, which is otherwise known as a partnership. And um, you know, one uh, would be caring uh, equally for everyone's needs, and two, using force minimally and to protect rather than to educate, punish, or to get what we want without agreement. And um, a little more about Dr. Uh, Rosenberg's uh, methods here. And I'll, I'll really, I really want to – this is the last thing I'm going to be ending with because it's so important to me. And I think it, it would be important to you and it, I, I definitely think it's very, very valuable. So you know, Dr. Rosenberg says that there are certain ways of communicating that tend to alienate people from our experiences of compassion. Um, and this is from chapter two in his book. He talks about moralistic judgments, which is – I mentioned earlier, which is implying wrongness or badness on the part of the people who don't act, don't act in harmony with our values. So you blame. You throw insults. You put down labels, criticisms, com, you know, comparisons, diagnoses. All are said to be forms of judgment. Uh, moralistic judgment are not to be confused with value judgments as – you know, uh, which, is, which is more – which is a topic for, for another day. Um, but the use of these moralistic judgments is characterized by an impersonal way of expressing oneself that does not require one to reveal what is going on inside oneself. This way of speaking is said to have the results of our attention is focused on classifying, analyzing, and determinizing levels of wrongness rather than on what we and others need and what we're not getting and are not getting. The next portion of uh, the next type of uh, communication that tends to alienate people is demands that implicitly or explicitly threaten listeners with blame or punishment if they fail to comply. So uh, obviously that doesn't allow you to uh, to come together. It, it encourages alienation and removes the compassion altogether from the conversation. The next is a denial of responsibility. And this is usually through language you know, that obscures the awareness of personal responsibility. Uh, it's something that – it's said that we can deny responsibility for our actions when we attribute their causes to vague, impersonal forces like I had to, you know, um, our condition, our diagnosis, uh, personal or psychological history, the actions of others, uh, the dictates of authorities, uh, group pressure, institutional policies, rules, regulations, gender roles, social roles, age roles, uncontrollable impulses, you know. Um, these are all things – that uh, you know cause us to uh, have these vague inter- impersonal f- forces. Um, the next point that he makes is making a comparison between people, and I don't think um, in making comparisons between people. And this is another another psychologist had a great point 
Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson had a great point on comparing yourself to who you were yesterday versus comparing yourself to someone who they are today. Because when you compare yourself to someone who – so if I compare myself to somebody who they are today, what I see – what I'm seeing really is a snapshot. I'm seeing them in a in a tube, in an environment that they are prepared to be in and you're only seeing a – what? 5% of what the person is really going through. Yes, they might be successful. Yes, they might have um, the, the awesome car and a great house, but maybe their family hates them. Maybe their kids don't like them. Maybe, maybe, maybe their kid doesn't talk to them. You know, maybe, maybe they, maybe they don't have a connection with anybody uh, that they care about. Maybe every interaction and relationship they have isn't personal. Maybe it's all, you know, fake. You know, this is uh, this is what I mean by being careful by making comparisons because you might make a comparison but not know the tragedy and the suffering in someone's life even if you see on the outside that that person might have the most splendid and amazing life out there. And uh, the last premise is the, the premise of deserving that certain actions merit rewards while others merit punishment and that's also a very, very important uh, point that Dr. Rosenberg talks about. And, um, you know, to close it off, um, you know, the four components that he talks about is, you know, uh, you know, observation, um, feelings, needs, and requests, you know, uh, observation of the facts. What are we seeing? What are we hearing? What are we touching as distinct from our evaluation of meaning and significance in you know, our feelings? What are our emotions, uh, sensations? You know, uh, this is what we have to, fo- you know, our focus, our attention and, you know, uh, towards, you know, uh, these are these feelings. Are they distinguished from thoughts? You know, are they, are they are they part of your thoughts? I mean, where how how long have they been in your head? Needs. You know, we talked about needs earlier. Dr. Rosenberg mentioned that you know universal human needs is distinct from particular strategies for meeting needs. You know, we have to understand that that's it's a fact. You know, um, people all have needs, and a lot of the times those needs are emotional, and we don't really understand that because either we're living and moving too fast. Or sometimes as men, we, we avoid emotions completely and go towards, you know, argumentation and ideas. Um, and request, you know, requests for specific action free of demand. Requests are distinguished from demands in that one person's open to hearing a response of no without this triggering an attempt to force the matter. So that's also very important. It's, it's you know, understanding the observations you need, to, uh, you need to have, understanding the feelings, understanding the needs, but also understanding that request is different than a demand. Um, and, and making this distinction in your head is, is essential. And the three primary modes of NVC is self-empathy. It involves compassionately connecting with what's going on inside us. This may involve, you know, Noticing the thoughts and judgments we are having, noticing our feelings, and most most critically, connecting with the needs uh, that are affecting us. You know, and second, receiving empath- empathetically. And NVC involves connection with uh, with what's alive and the other person, and what would make life wonderful for them. It's not un- it's not an understanding of the head, where we just mentally understand what the other person says. Empathetic connection is an understanding of the heart in which we see the beauty in another person, the divine energy in the other person, the life that's alive in them. It doesn't mean we have to feel the same feelings as the other person. The sympathy, that's sympathy. When we feel sad for another person, is uh, other person is upset. It doesn't mean that we have to have the same feelings. It means that we are, uh, we are with the other person. If you're mentally trying to understand the other person, you're not to present uh, present with them. You know, empathy involves, 
as uh, Dr. Rosenberg mentioned, uh, emptying the mind and listening with our whole being. Um, it, it involves you to to give you know your your yourself to the to the conversation. Suggests that, however, the you know MVC suggests that, however, other person expresses themselves, we focus on listening for understanding the observations, the feelings, and the needs and the requests of the person. This is what we need to understand. You know, when we talk to people, we need to understand their we need to understand their observations, their feelings, their needs, and requests. No matter how the other person is expressing themselves, it's you know. And then the last thing. Um, and to close it off for today, the last thing I'd like to mention is uh, the last mode that uh, Dr. Rosenberg talks about is expressing honestly. An NVC um, likely involved expressing an, an observation, you know, feeling need, need or request. This is very common in NVC. You're supposed to express these things. And an observation may be emitted if the context or the, if the conversation is clear. You know, a feeling may be emitted if there's a sufficient connection already. Or the context is already uh, where naming a feeling isn't likely to contribute to uh, to a connection, you know. And this research that that um, Dr. Rosenberg has done in uh, the early '90s and late '80s, and uh, some of his actually, excuse me, <laughs> '60s all the way to uh, when he passed in the early 2000s. Um, Dr. Rosenberg has really changed the way I li- listen. And you know, we talked about listening before we got into the Marshall Rosenberg nonviolent communication discussion. And listening is essential, but listening with the intent to understand, you know, the person's observations, you know, the person's feelings, their needs and their requests, and being able to actively meet those at different times, I think is essential to really coming down to a position of understanding. And this is, you know, going from we talked about to disagreeing, going to, you know, listening and being able to not trying to win, being able to find truth and to hear that the person is saying all the way to taking the words of Marshall Rosenberg and applying that into your life. I think if we can take these things, you know, take these concepts, you know, Paul Graham's hierarchy of disagreement and Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, if you can take these two things and apply it every single day to any type of conversation that you're getting into – I guarantee that with some practice and with some effort that your conversations will end up being more honest, more meaningful, less argumentative, less uh, name calling, less ad hominems, less pain and less suffering through the time that you're having the conversation. And it will ultimately lead you to a connection with another person, an understanding with another person and and ultimately a connection and an an understanding with yourself. And it allows you to self-empathize with what you're going for. And that's what we need to do. We need to have more self-empathy so that, you know, when we go out there and, and face the world, we can show uh, compassion for one another and really help one another out. And it starts by listening. And uh, with all, not only our ears, not only with our mind, but with our whole being and our whole soul. Thank you very much. I hope you guys have a great day. Mm-hmm. 